everybody welcome into show notes take two <laughs> which doesn't mean anything to you but what it really means is that i screwed up the memory card on the recording yesterday so you're getting a completely fresh and new take but it's our second time around so let's do this first of all hey 99 hi how you doing i'm good yeah? how are you good 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 great good great grand wonderful my brain's full. Like the memory card? Mm-hmm. What's it full of? The memory card was <laughs> definitely an allegory for what's going on in my head. Somehow, the I think I've, I've merged the technologies. I've reached the singularity with all the technology here. That was pretty soon. It's uh, It was inevitable. It, I just didn't think it would happen in 2023. Yeah, well, the artificial intelligence is certainly keener than my technological intellect. So we're going to start out. Quickly with headlines today. I say quickly. I, I don't know how quick it'll be, but it'll be faster than yesterday. How's mm -hmm. that? So there's probably a good reason that that was thrown out. They I were like, we do had better. Some, we had some good laughs, though, which is we, sad. We did. We had some We did, We did. had some belly chuckles, which was fun. Oh, well. So the first thing that I just want to get out there is we are going to try and in, in the spirit of trying to align some of the YouTube drops with the content that we have in the podcast. This week, I think I'm separating two different pieces on YouTube kind of related to what's going on with the banking crisis right now. And then a corollary of that is what's happening in Silicon Valley. I think that a couple of these things are related. Going to break them up into two separate pieces on YouTube and then pull them together for a full show over the weekend, which does bump another project that we've been working on, but it's good. We need the time for that. And that is on affirmative action. So excited to get to all of it. There's so much happening right now in the banking space that's literally happening by the day. And uh, I guess rehashing some of what we talked about yesterday, one of the things that, that happened, which was like so interesting because is so much of what we report on is affects the global economy or the domestic economy or, you know, how what, what's happening in our political space. And then sometimes you, you report on stories that you have a personal attachment to. 99's uh, veganism comes into into mind. Uh, some of the socioeconomic stuff that's like deeply important to us comes to mind. But on Sunday, as I was preparing some of the content for the upcoming week and had just finished off, I think, the Federal Reserve piece for uh, the podcast and then splitting that up for YouTube, I was reading a notice about Silicon Valley Bank going under and trying to really dig into that a little bit. And then in the same article, it was like, and now another bank has failed and it's Signature Bank from New York. And I was like... Hey, that's fucked up. That's our bank. <laughs> so bringing the stories and bringing the news close to home, not as close as George Santos being our congressman, which is just amazing. He's under he's under more investigations now than like anybody in history. I but think he just filed for like reelection or whatever. Oh, no, he's ready to go. Mm -hmm. He's ready to go. I kind of at this point, I'm like kind of into it. It's yeah. like it's like reverse irony or uh, what's no, that's not what I'm thinking of. Not reverse ironic. What, what's the word I'm thinking of? I don't know, but I hope he does campaign events near us. Time. So that we could really get to know him. I like guess community post outreach. ironic is what I meant to say, not reverse. So post ironic. Like, it's yeah, post, it's post ironic, ironic that yeah. I like, that we like him now. Like we're in a post racial period since Obama was elected. Yeah, sure. We're past racism. Exactly like that. Yeah. So, yeah, George Santos is our congressman and. Signature Bank was our bank. You're giving people too many. They're going to be able to geolocate us now. It's a New York bank. Yeah, but he's, now... he's a congressman with a pretty widespread district. I'm just saying. Yeah. They're, they're closing in. Yeah, I know. I know. So Signature Bank fails and uh, immediately, you know, and this is in the business of our business, by the way, the, the behind the scenes thing that really funds everything that we do here. And uh, so, you know, we sprung into action and tried to figure out what that meant. And the good thing is that a few years ago, as part of the kind of the the social endeavors that we try to take on, we also paired up with a community bank. One of the things that we try to encourage people to do is to bank either personally or or do their business banking with credit unions or community banks, or at least have a part of what you do with it with a, a nice with a local bank that you know they don't really often have the bells and whistles of one of the big commercial banks. And but not a lot of businesses really need that stuff because the basics are the basics. So we had partnered with the community bank and they've been absolutely wonderful and totally responsive. I can't say enough about that experience. 
which I didn't really anticipate loving as much as I do on a business level. On a personal level, I think it's great. And uh, so we were able to swing more things over there and uh, we're just kind of watching things unfold with Signature Bank. But it did give us kind of a front row seat into what happens when a bank does fail and what happens when the feds take over. So I'm not going to really interject a lot of uh, personal anecdotes or experiences with it because we're basically just getting the, the corporate party line of whatever's happening. But it is a fascinating thing to watch. It's very troublesome because now you see it bleeding into the markets. You can just judge by the stock prices, which banks are close to the edge right now. There's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk that, uh, what is the um, mm, Credit Suisse, which has been close to failing, by the way, for like a decade. But Credit Suisse is close to the edge once again, and the European banks are not so keen to uh, to participate in in pulling them out of it. You see that the the central banking system in the United States is not all that keen in bailing these banks out. Stop They're, saying keen. Keen? You said it twice. I did? Mm-hmm. There, there's a, a misunderstanding of bank bailouts at this point. One of the things that Dodd-Frank did well was it put in place a reserve that all the banks have to pay into in order to cover any potential defaults from a bank going under. So that's pretty much what is going to be funding any of the the depositors that are above the FDIC-insured deposit base. But, you know, there's a cap to that, too. I think it's a, it, I think they have around one hundred million dollars, one hundred billion dollars in reserve. But just signature alone could swallow up, let's say, 20 billion dollars of that. So this is not something that they can necessarily sustain a massive run or one of the giant banks to fail. But the other thing that Dodd-Frank did, which gets into the Trump regulations, is it did protect the big banks to a degree by putting them under much more strenuous guidelines and guidance in the regulatory framework for their capitalization requirements and what they have to hold. The middle banks, which is really the key distinction here, is a little different scenario because one of the good things that people thought that Trump did was he he pulled back on some of the onerous regulations that the, the middle level banks have to adhere to. People thought that was a good thing at the time because it loosened up some lending and it allowed middle banks to really participate at a deeper level because it is very, very onerous for smaller banks to comply with the same type of requirements that, let's say, a Citigroup or a JP Morgan Chase would have to would have to adhere to. That being said, you reap what you sow and you're going to play with fire in an environment where things change. Circumstances change. The economy changed. The capitalization rates of these banks went down. We'll talk a little bit more in detail about what uh, Silicon Valley Bank did in particular to lower their capitalization rates. And it put them in a, in a really funky position when the Fed raised rates. So we'll go into more detail about that. It's it's going to be a fun one to kind of dig into and, and unpack. But the danger Fine. here is that um, the danger is that these things have an, an emotional component to them and bank runs are tend to be a frenzy. Will some giant players be at risk? No. If anything, I think that the really small banks are going to be in a good place to pick up deposits and the really big banks are going to be in an even better place to pick up some of the institutional players that might have been at that that mid-level. So we'll see how it plays out. But um, for this week, the, the headline that I wanted to tease out in the spirit of uh, headlines and show notes is off topic from all the uh, economic stuff that we've been doing because I wanted to make sure that we're we're keeping our eyes open to other things. And that is Project Willow, which is the drilling site that has been approved by the Biden administration in Alaska. So we're putting a link to an Al Jazeera article because it takes a lot of the issues on either side of the political spectrum into account. But it again, it does it in in kind of a, an, a non-emotional way. It just kind of says, hey, here's what proponents of it say and here's what uh, detractors of, of the Willow Project say. The upshot of the whole thing is that this is going to be one of the biggest domestic drilling operations in maybe decades. It's going to be an enormous project that will do a couple of things. One is it will contribute to this false notion that we need to be energy independent and still base our economy on fossil fuels. And I say it's a false notion because we're already energy independent and that gets lost in the shuffle. We are a net exporter of energy from this country. We are still one of the largest producers and still on the planet and still have some of the largest proven reserves on this planet. And many of these leases, by the way, that are, that are sitting out there are sitting out there dormant because there's still not a need to tap into them. 
Now, Alaska is a little bit different. So the economic angle here is that in Alaska, this has a high level of support because it is, it is in a very remote area and it is a huge contributor to the state coffers. So they know that this will benefit jobs in Alaska. For Alaska natives, who knows, because these tend to be people that come in from outside to do this kind of stuff. So that's not really a that's not really a talking point to stand behind, but it will contribute to the state coffers. It is, it is a massive gen revenue generator. And you see that the proven reserves in the other wells that Alaska's had for, I don't know, 50, 60 years have begun to deplete because that's the natural lifespan of a reserve for of an oil reserve. So, you know, I. I, I don't want to, so I'm not trying to downplay the environmental significance because that is the story here, is the fact that the Biden administration was kind of talking out of both sides of it, its mouth, saying that they would not allow any new drilling on federal lands. And then they allowed for this, I mean, massive project. The other side of it is the economic equation is very important to Alaskans because their opportunities in the new economy are dwindling rapidly. So it is still very much a fossil-based economy. It's not as easy as saying, well, like in West Virginia, we're going to replace, we're going to retrain coal miners and we're going to try to retrain that industry because we can bring renewable energy plants down there and we can bring solar manufacturing plants down there because there's a population base. There's also, it's easy to get to, easier to access. There's already transportation lines because that that's a mature infrastructure. That's really not the case in Alaska. So Alaska doesn't have the economic retraining opportunities. So this is an important part for them. Just giving some jobs first analysis on what's going on. But what Al Jazeera also lays out, as many of the environmental groups do, is this will be a 30 year well. This will be a productive well for 30 years and it will release an enormous amount of methane into the atmosphere and contribute to basically, you know, not being able to hit our 2030 targets, because if this, it, this is just business as usual, instead of the transformational aspects of the, what was, what was the build back better bill that wound up being split into two bills, the transformational aspects on the environment, this kind of just makes it more difficult. So I totally get it. I think before we have any productive conversation on it, or we go further down uh, the rabbit hole in talking about this particular project in the in the landscape of trying to defossilize the economy, we should be aware of all of the different arguments that are are being posed and understand that Alaska is very much in favor of this and Alaskans are very much in favor of this. And it has great support, obviously, from the business community, but it's a Chevron project. It's going to take us further away from our 2030 targets, and it is it lives completely in opposition to what the Biden administration had promised in trying to defossilize the economy. So good article to read, a good primer if it's not something you've been thinking about lately. Nailed it. <laughs> Much better than yesterday, right? I don't think it's a, it's a, com uh, a competition with our yesterday selves. Okay. You know? All right. Those were but if we're going to be in competition, it should be cherish. with ourselves, like to always do better, right? No, I like to actively compete against myself and try to do worse every day. That's weird. That's really weird. Yeah. I'm just different. I'm, I'm like quirky like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm just like, I'm just like so unique and special. I know that. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. But, but do you? No. You should know that. I'm just a basic white bitch. Mm-hmm. You're so not a basic white bitch, even if you want to kill all 75-year-old white men. All right, so... Why don't we get after it today? Yeah. Let's get into emails. Okay. Start us off. All right. John H. wants to call you out for a mistake you made. As he should. So in the latest show regarding the difference between PCE and CPI and conflating them with core versus headline inflation, which is a completely unrelated distinction, PCI and CPE both have headline and core measures, and the decision of whether to use core or headline is independent of which data source is chosen. Yes and yes. So in the Federal Reserve piece, and I'm going to go revise this on Substack, but it's already out there in the ether. I'm not going to redo this on the actual show itself. Uh, so this will serve as our formal correction. I really struggled in putting the what the Fed does paragraphs together because it was very long when I first did it. And I realized it was getting a little much, a little bit into the weeds. So through the editing process, I kind of consolidated and, and overwrote on myself on certain paragraphs. And then so one of the things I left in there that was a flaw was exactly this. 
PCE is done by a different bureau than CPI. CPI is the one that most of us refer to when we're talking about inflation. And it's so that's the more universal term that we look at. Both of them have core and headline inflation numbers. So headline CPI is what most of us relate to when we think about inflation in the country and how it impacts us in our daily lives. The difference between headline and core is that uh, core takes out energy and food prices. Now, the reason that they actually do that is because the other elements of inflation are more stable over time, whereas food and energy prices have have the will tend to vary wildly over short periods of time. So they can kind of throw off some key metrics. So economists like to look at the core inflation numbers and say, oh, okay, wow, there's uh, an area of this uh, service economy that's increased much more dramatically over the last six months than any period before. That kind of tells you a different story than if like eggs, for example, going through the roof right now because Avion flew and some manufacturing and supply chain issues. And then Avion? What's that? Avion? Avion? What should I say? Avion? <laughs> yeah. It's not Avion? There's Is no, that the water? That's Avion. Avion? Avion flu. You're doing like... Avion. You're doing like Avon. Avion. 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 Sorry. Avion flu. <laughs> so uh, something like that impacting uh, eggs, which is, you know, a huge raw material for foodstuffs and it's it's, it's an independent commodity. Energy obviously being the, is the biggest component of food and energy prices because it can fluctuate dramatically over short periods of time. But as far as you're concerned as a consumer, as far as all of us are concerned, the core inflation from CPI or headline inflation from CPI puts all of those things together and that's what impacts your basically your ability to spend and and what and how far your dollar goes. So I had conflated the two as John said and I apologize for that and that is the real definition right there. Now Craig H said, "I have a couple of things rattling around in my head and this weekend's pod just amplified them. First, I'm curious on your take of Jude Waninsky's two Santa Claus theory. Tom Hartman, and somebody we love, has spoken of it many times. Basically, the Democrats have been Santa Claus delivering great social policies, so Wininsky proposed that Republicans, when in charge, run up our debt. Then when Democrats are in charge, the Republicans scream about the debt and get the Democrats to cut social policies and kill their Santa while Republicans deliver their Santa in the form of tax cuts. I mean, that theory right there is pretty much... That's that's pretty disciplined. That pretty much describes at least the last 50 years. What's a little bit different right now is, well, you know, under under Trump, no, they got their Santa Claus with the tax cuts and social Didn't programs. They be getting their gifts. Yeah. What did I say? No, I'm saying in the theory, wouldn't yeah. Santa Claus be the like each party is, and then what they get is their presents? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm just wondering. Yeah, totally. I'm gonna fight Tom. And I'm going to call him Thom. Thom Hartman. Yeah. <laughs> Hartman and then. Yeah. Thom Hartman and then. Spell your name right. Thom. <laughs> so, yeah, th- I think it's a that's a really good way to think about how they're all speaking out of every side of their mouth when it comes to this stuff. What if we have a Santa Claus and a Hanukkah Harry, which I don't believe in. You don't believe in Hanukkah Harry? No, but just for representation, I feel like we should differentiate. Okay. Um, you know, I'd have to check with Kanye. Oh, what happened to that guy, by the way? I don't know. What a Charlie Sheen level flame out, right? Like you couldn't get away from him and then nowhere. Hopefully he's getting help. I hope so. That would be nice. Yeah, I hope so. There was a very sly Saturday Night Live joke about him. What uh, was it? I guess splitting up with uh, they're coming to the settlement with their divorce with between he and oh, still? Kim. And um and Colin Joe said something like, I'm going to guess that Kanye had a harder time finding a good lawyer, <laughs> <laughs> meaning a Jew. Ha ha. Very funny. Anyway. Well, SNL let Woody Harrelson spread anti-vax propaganda, so they're on my shit list. Yeah, they also let Elon Musk in the door. And, and I feel like that's the Chappelle special. At the time, like, that was, well, the Chappelle thing was also bad. The Musk one at the time was like bad. Not I feel like it was less bad than it would be if they did it now. Unless I'm just revisionist history 
that because I don't remember what it was. Like half of the cast was like really pissed off about Elon Musk was at it? the time. He was, was, he was, he was already was, bad. He was, yeah. I couldn't remember. He was trending bad for but sure. Like, you seriously? Because so much out, was already out about the him allowing the persistent racism. And oh, those okay. like those claims were pretty pretty evident. It's I just you forget so quickly what happens. Yeah. Like But that's what's so funny about the timeline of Kanye. It's just it it's so reminiscent of Charlie Sheen's winning meltdown. But because that it was wasn't just like offensive. It, no, it was it was just out of control, and the media couldn't get enough of it, and we couldn't get enough of it as consumers because it was just a it was a train wreck every day, and they kept willing to show they were willing to show up in front of cameras and microphones, and nobody was able to rein them in. Very different circumstances, but same type of like total zeitgeist of the of the moment, like so representative of like the nuttiest two months in media following those two guys around and then they both disappeared in the same way well charlie sheen got hiv and then i think had to like really start to tone it down after that it's like oh i better start really taking care of myself so anyway that's uh that's santa claus nice. and that's tom hartman then then uh what's next we got sherman d dreadnought sherman, yes sherman says it does me no good to hear warren taking a hard line against powell in the hearings mm. i can't forgive or forget her part along with the dnc and sandbagging bernie in this latest election yeah, I wasn't trying to platform Elizabeth Warren. I had the same issue, even though, you know, most of what she does and how she votes, I align with. To me, it was unforgivable. She should have broken with the Buttigieg and the rest of the career Democrats to back Bernie because it was clear that Bernie wasn't going to get the nomination anyway. So she could have really staked her claim with the progressive wing of the movement and put whatever personal differences she had aside with Bernie and say, this is still the person who most represents the values that I have been trying to bring forward. And I think it would have done more for her image as a progressive. And so now it sort of cast a cloud over that. But my point of including her and John Kennedy more prominently than Sherrod Brown and some others on the committee was to demonstrate that as far left as people perceive Elizabeth Warren to be and as far right as John Kennedy absolutely is, they were driving the same narrative lane in criticizing Powell for trying to put people out of work. And I thought that that was that was interesting because I, I have no I certainly have no interest in platforming uh, bless your heart, John Kennedy either. So uh, that's why I did that. But I, I totally get that it still stings to to hear from Elizabeth Warren these days. And our buddy Hub said your podcast on the Fed not only reaffirmed for me that economics is all smoke and mirrors, but you added a vision of blunt instruments, something that cannot be unseen no wonder I chose pediatrics. I don't do numbers well. Well, that's my hope, is that we can translate things into blunt verbal instruments of our own to make them make sense and show you that, yeah, for all of the, the highfalutin talk of the Fed and, and all the, the mumbo jumbo around numbers, it really just comes down to these very basic things and principles, which is their job is to put people out of work if there's inflation. Pretty amazing. Anyway, thanks, Hub. Great to hear from you. I hope all is well and uh, send your family my love. So with that, why don't we get into general feedback? 99, what's going on with Brian C? Brian C cried. You made him cry. They cried more than a little at the closing of the epilogue to Jimmy Carter, particularly with Jimmy in hospice care. It was surreal timing, beautiful words, and it came together in such an inspiring way. I really appreciate that. So this will sound more than a little egotistical, but I, I have to say that the epilogue to the Carter series is ranks among my favorite episodes of all time. First of all, because of the very obvious man crush that I have developed on Jimmy Carter. No, oh, just crush. I just crush, just crush. Yep. I'm sorry. See, I almost caught myself. You did. No, you did catch yourself. Thank you. Thank you. At the same time. The very obvious crush that I've developed on Jimmy Carter, the human being, but hopefully it came through that I disagreed with much of his economic and domestic policy for sure, but I have great admiration for the human. I was editing an old piece in preparation for moving from Substack mm. and you made reference, I think it was in the Prosperity Doctrine Crisis Capitalist, <laughs> so like episode six or something, and you made reference to there not being like a good Christian since Jimmy Carter. So mm. it's been there all along. Yeah, yeah, the love has definitely been there. I, I, but really digging deep into his life gave me such, such great admiration. It's weird that it's it, it did all come about with him going into hospice and obviously taking the, you know, writing the last couple pages of this incredible life story that he has. But I was really proud of the way that that episode came together in the end because I, I felt like it was a 
a good clinical analysis of the policy, the people that he surrounded himself with, the failings, uh, showing that he wasn't too small for the moment, but the moment would have overwhelmed just about anybody. And the closing meant a lot to me. And I and I thought I thought we nailed it. Now, I should say a big piece of that is, you know, you put the words on the page, you try to craft the story as best you can, and then you include these elements and you send it off to an audio engineer and you just hope for the best because, you know, these audio engineers, oof. But as usual, it, it the nice part about having the comfort level that the three of us have with one another and being able to 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 do what we do, it, if you saw the scripts from the very beginning of the show to how they've evolved and the shorthand that we now have, because we can we can read each other and we know how they're going to treat it. A couple musical selections, a couple of suggestions, putting that in, giving the read and then just knowing that when we deliver it to Manny Faces, that it's going to come back exactly or even better than how you you hear it in your head. It's such a it gives you such a sense of of freedom to be able to just create the words in the first place because you're, you're not twisted about like how it's going to come out. I think as much as it was a, a well-crafted episode, Manny absolutely crushed the tonal aspects of it that made it what it was. So thank you. 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 If you haven't listened to the epilogue, give it a shot because I think it kind of puts a nice bow and a nice ribbon on the the whole series. Uh, so thank you, Brian, for uh, the recognition. I appreciate it. And uh, another long way of saying thank you to Manny for the, the love and care with uh, all the audio. I love Manny faces. Love, love, love Manny, Manny faces. faces. Thank you. Thank you. Tell me what Simone a had to say. I read Brian's. Okay, Brian. Every time I hear Brian, I just hear family guy. Is that bad? I wouldn't say bad. Just Brian. Boring and basic. <laughs> Well, I've never seen an episode of Family Guy. That's oh how unique God. and quirky and cool I am. My, I wouldn't have watched Family Guy except for my eldest got into it. That's weird. And I don't know. I don't. I don't support that. She likes Very Bojack weird. Horseman. Oh, well, that's but that's high art. Family Guy. Um, There's too much it, like yelling it, on Family Guy for me. It's very noisy. Any Nick Kroll yeah. shit? Oh, right? I love. Is, I love Nick Kroll. Well, even though is he's, that Big Mouth? Well, I have not seen Big Mouth, but I was thinking Kroll's show. That's Kroll not show, animated, yeah. though. And he got he got tapped to help Mel Brooks bring History of the World Part Two, which is apparently out, and I haven't seen it yet. It and is. I cannot fucking wait. I know. I was like, we should watch it together. I don't know how oh that would have happened, but we should. Well, uh, you can do parties, right? My daughters do that. They do watch party things yeah. on something. Mm -hmm. Discord. No, on the thing itself. Well, I, they probably like just watch it together oh, on Netflix and then can. FaceTime each other or some shit like that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think you can. But yeah, he's also his dad is a billionaire. Yes. Coal yeah. Coal industries. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. <laughs> I don't think I'm probably a very liberal person either. But oh, I think no? Kroll is. No, his father. I'm oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. No, Kroll definitely is. I liked yeah. his, his last stand-up was actually like mostly good. It must have been a while ago, right? Has he done stand-up in a while? No, I think he's working on a show right now, but mm. I think his stand-up came out. I watched it again with my eldest about six, eight months ago, and it was really good. I will say, I thought he was hot before he had like a glow-up. So He did not have a glow-up. Yes, up, he 100% had a glow-up. Yes, oh he did. God. Look at him in Kroll show where he's like dingy. And oh. I mean, I still thought he was hot. And then now he's got like a silver thing and he's like, little more toned in his face and he like grew into himself you like know, steve carell yeah you know how men just fucking get hotter it's unfair and women i, I mean we get more beautiful <clears throat> of course always but like men you could have like an ugly ass man no offense and then like there'll be like a hot grown-up and you're like what and so kroll had a had a glow up and i just i just saw insist. the beauty in his face and his personality his voice is just so iconic you should see you you need it's to like everything that comes out of his mouth makes me laugh he's on parks and rec and he, he, him and Matt Besser have a radio show. They're supposed to be like kind of sterny or like Opie and Anthony. It's called Crazy Ira and the Douche. So he's the douche. And he's just so fucking funny. And ugh, you need to watch it. 
I ha I have committed myself. That's why I was able to drop a Ron Swanson reference to you the other day no, because I've so, seen but enough that's of like it. So everyone knows who Ron Swanson is at this I'm point. I'm trying. I know, but I want you to watch it. I just don't so understand many shows. why. But this one is worthwhile. I have so many books to read. You watch TV. Like I know you watch I TV. I do to shut it off every once in a while. I'll shut the brain off every once in a and while. And Parks and Rec is absolutely that. I know. I have a lot of shut off stuff. I watch a lot of violent stuff to shut my brain off. Which is the opposite. Of Parks and Rec? No, I know. But that's just how my brain likes to decompress. Just to like watch John Wick over and over. What's the most violent thing you watched recently? Besides the news. Ha <laughs> uh, ha. Um, the Last of Us is pretty fucked up. My is my youngest. Yeah. Yeah, pretty violent. Mm. But like real life, quote unquote, real life human violence, John Wick style of like not zombie apocalypse shit. I'd have to really think about it. But mm. like John Wick, it would be a go to. I, I will just like scroll the action section. It, if if it has Jason Statham in it, I'm probably watching it. Mm, yeah. Because okay. he just fucking beats people up for like an hour and a half. He's pretty hot. Okay. There you go. That I get. Nick Kroll. <laughs> You do you, baby. Mm -hmm. That's very close-minded of you. I know. Uh, so, okay, thank you, Brian C. And Simone A. I'm doing Simone, right? <laughs> yes, okay. that's where we started. Then you Ooh. started talking about Family Guy. Goodness. I heard of Brian. <laughs> yep, don't do it. No, here we go again. <laughs> I heard Max in 99 talking about prison abolition felt the need to weigh in. The issue with prisons in our prison system, as I see it, from many perspectives, including having a close friend incarcerated in the federal system, is that as a society, we don't seem to know who we want to be. It reminds me of the, uh, I don't know who said it, but the value of a society should be measured by how you treat the least within it. And the least within it typically tends to be incarcerated people. I thought it was going to be like how you treat service workers. <laughs> That's my personal. Or like if you push a cart back to its little home. Also a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So how you treat people incarcerated, how you treat waiters. Right. Shopping carts. We also, uh, three. we were out to dinner the other night. And um, yes, I know it was, it was very unusual. It was one of those moments where we came home. We didn't have to drive anywhere. We were both home from work at the same time. And we had like three hours between the next. Seriously. The telemarketer is calling. I say leave it in. Nobody needs to know that I have such a foolish ring. <laughs> I'm going to hear that, that my nightmares. such a fucking old Every person ring. Every single time I'm having a fucking meeting with Max, his phone rings no less than six times. So loud. And I think somehow the universe knows. Mm. The other day we were having a meeting and someone he knew from middle school walked in. Yeah, that's true. I have that just really no luck. So <laughs> Can't get a hold of him. We were at... Uh, so we were at dinner. We took a chance to just in the middle of the week, go have like a mini date. And it was wonderful. And there was this young, cute couple next to us that happened to live on our street. So they, they live with their parents, but they live on our street. How did you know? What? How do you know that? They live on my street. They're across the street from so us. Do you know them? Yeah. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they're adorable. Talk to their and neighbors. they're very, very sweet. So I picked up their check. And oh, I, look at this guy. No, 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 no because. Okay. And, well, first of all, I, I don't <laughs> My wife was going to strangle me in the beginning because she thought they their backs were to us. So she didn't realize who it was. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why would you just do that randomly? Like, you know, we're on a budget here. And I was like, no, it's so-and-so, blah, 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 whatever. She's like, oh, my God, they're so adorable. And we did it. But the reason for that is because somebody did that for us when we were, like, just engaged, when we were first starting out. And I, it always stuck with me. Like when I get older, if I have the ability to do that for like a cute young couple that, 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 you know, we know or whatever, how wonderful would that be? And so we did that. So that was my little contribution. I don't so know why nothing, I said that. Nothing to do with service. No, nothing to do with the waiter. Just you bragging. Yeah. That was like, that was, that was kind of awful. No, it was cute. No, that was awful. No. You're right. I think you just wanted to share. An, I think you wanted to share an anecdote because it wasn't about you giving back. It was about you returning a favor and spreading that love. Well, it was about spreading love, but it did come from the idea of treating service workers well because I did spend some time in hospitality and can judge characters by how tr people treat their waiters for fucking sure. And so that's what made me think about it. Even if you have a bad waiter. Yeah, always kind to of the waiter. It doesn't matter to me. I had a really bad waiter. We, I, we went away this summer and he was just very spacey. Like, I think he was high, 
which I'm like, I get it, man. You know, fucking do what you got to do get through your shift. But like, it was to the point where like, we, we were the only table in his section and he didn't come over. <laughs> and like, we'd been there for like 15 minutes. And then My another man. lady walked by and was He's like- ripping butts outside. Yeah. She was like, do you have a waiter? And I was like, I, I don't know his name. Like, he, he didn't tell us. So we can't tell you. They found him. And then um, we ordered drinks. They took forever. Mm-hmm. And then we ordered food. It took forever. And then he brought me my food and I had meat on it. And I had I wasn't complaining, but I said, this man's not very good at his job. I mm-hmm. said, I'm not going to be mean to him. That's I was right. just telling my friends, like, mm-hmm. what else are you going to do? That's right. And then they were like, you can't judge waiters because you've never worked in you've never worked in food service. And I'm like, because I've never been a waiter, I can't identify if someone's not great at their job. I know great service. I'm not going to tip them any differently because I'm not that type of person. Like, right. they still need a, a living. And then when, when my food was fucked up, then they were like, okay, fine. He's a bad waiter. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, and then... He brought me, I had, I got like a veggie wrap and I had fries. And like, usually when, when they fix your food, they bring you like a whole new plate. He took my, like, I didn't know what to do with my plate. He put the fries from the old plate on the new plate. Isn't that weird? Like, I feel like that's not what you do. Cause like yeah. they could have been touching the meat. It was just a whole thing. Yeah. But I was still nice to him. And that's why I'm an angel. And that's why I'm going to heaven. My little one has a job and she's in quasi food service, but it's fast food service right mm-hmm. now. And, uh, I'm always curious. She said just the way that people interact with her is just fascinating. I, it's 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 like it should be required to be in hospitality and, and service in that way to just see how other people see you, treat you or don't see you. It's just fascinating. Her people that she knows will come in and order stuff and just and not know that it was her. And then at the end, she'll just be like, Hey, so and so, and they'll be like, "Oh my god, I didn't even know it was you," because they just don't even—they're just not looking. She's working you know? like a drive-through. How do no, they? No, not no, no. It's a walk-in. It's a walk-in kind of thing. That's weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, because people don't see the person. It's so fascinating. I feel like they I don't just know. see like a hat and a shirt, and they don't give a shit who's under it. That's weird. Yeah. I worked as a worked in a pottery studio, and I would do like birthday parties. We still like, love going to the pottery studio with the kids. <laughs> but the which is no, it was, it's it was a really fun place. But the birthday parties were a fucking nightmare, disaster. Because the parents do not care; they leave their kids, they let them do whatever they want, and I'm yeah. like, fine, whatever. And then the parents like they don't tip. Oh, it happened yeah, yeah. so many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One time, I worked a party all by myself, which I shouldn't have been, and there was like it was like a bunch of five year olds, and it was really hard. And I worked my ass off. And they recognized that I was alone and like trying really hard. And they gave me a tip, Mm. a nice tip. And then this girl who was technically senior to me was like, well, I didn't get tips on my party. So we have to split it. And I said, I don't think that's how that works. Like we don't pool our tips here. Right? Is that rude? If we don't pool our tips, it's not my fault. It needs, it it shouldn't be up to you. It's a policy, policy. right? Yeah. And I came home, I cried. I was so tired. Of course you did. Because it was so exhausting. Did you split the tips? I don't think so. So I don't know. Mm. I think I was like, let's ask our bosses tomorrow because I'm not comfortable with that. Okay. Because she worked like a real, like a fucking five person party. I worked like a 20 kid party. That bitch. I know. Hate her. Her name was oh. Sam, I think. Okay. <laughs> I don't right. remember. She was weird. The end. Well, Sam, I hope you're a good person today. I think she just wanted the tips too. And yeah, I, get no, I get it. That. You know, she I was like that. 18. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Simone said. <laughs> You started this. I know. We were going to be tighter today. Oh, God. We're so over. The issue with prisons in our system, as I see it, including having a friend incarcerated in the federal system, is that we don't seem to know who we want to be. If our goal is a safer society, by that I mean safer, long-term safer, then punishment won't do the trick. So much research on that. We can be a retributive... Retributive. Retributive society if all we want is vengeance. But punishment does not fundamentally alter anyone's behavior once you go above things like shoplifting. Prison isn't a deterrent. My MBA is in psychology. I worked with remanded adolescents in residential school for what we used to call learning disabled, developmentally delayed. The nomenclature has evolved uh, at this point. Even 30 years ago, when I was doing my undergrad, the reputable research pointed to the inefficiency of punishment even when raising children. I say this because I'm in favor of prison abolition, and I'm also aware that at least in this juncture in history, the overall U.S. culture need for vengeance combined with the initial cost and need to actually care about poor people and other types of marginalized folks means it is unlikely that in my lifetime a restorative, rehabilitative model will ever exist. There's so much happening with this. 
And uh, I will try to shorten my diatribe that none of you heard from yesterday. And that is that attacking this problem has to happen on multiple fronts. And it begins, well, I don't know where it begins, but one core element is this uh, progressive wave of district attorneys and prosecutors. That is a very, very good trend because it's about what they choose to charge people with, when they choose to charge people, the types of fines involved in the level of criminality that they're charged with. There's been such a trend over the past 30, 40 years to overcharge and try to get people to basically cop to please, even if they did it, didn't do it, or if it was excessive, to try to cop to some sort of plea deal so that they could basically score more points on their record when they're running for election or re-election. The insanity of the cash bail system I know so many friends that consider themselves liberal and or progressive that are against the the reformation of the cash bail system. We're going through it in New York right now. And I have real hardcore Democrat friends that are screaming from the rooftops that it was the absolute wrong policy. It is 100% the right policy because the numbers back it up for a lot of the reasons, first of all, that Simone is identifying here. But also because we've been filling up jails artificially with people who simply can't pay the fines that are associated with the charges that are brought to them. We have people that are still sitting in prison who have not had their day in court and they're there for days, weeks, months, and in some cases over a year without even getting a trial because they don't have the money to get the right type of access to either the, the legal system and the profession for defense or to be able to get out on bail. It's just wrongheaded and it takes so many people out of the workforce. And then when they cop to a plea just to get through all of it, then they've eliminated so many of the social services and welfare benefits that might otherwise be afforded to them. Thank you, Bill Clinton. So the progressive prosecutorial movement is a very positive part of this thing. Another thing that we surfaced recently is most Americans don't know that we still have Another level of prisons in this country that came into existence post 9-11, these communication management units, the one that I'm most familiar with is the one in Terre Haute. This is the one where you do not have habeas corpus, where you have no rights ascribed to you if you are remanded to one of those facilities because you are considered a domestic terrorist threat. Now, there are people that should be locked away that are not meant to walk in society, that the, the horse left the barn. We cannot get this back. And you do not want these people walking the street. It's not about not being tough on criminality, but we're tough on the wrong crime and too much crime because it has not, it doesn't necessarily correlate with the behavior that got people into this situation. Most rational people, if they are willing to have a conversation about this, understand that the biggest way to influence the size of the prison population and the amount of criminality in a society is to reduce poverty. Poverty is a systemic issue that influences the level of crime that somebody is willing to take on personally in order to basically extricate themselves from very, very difficult situations in their lives. So poverty alleviation, getting people into work, getting people into the system, rehabilitation, making sure that we're, we're cutting down on recidivism because we're focusing on rehabilitation, what life looks like afterwards, restoring voting rights, and progressive prosecutorial movement, all of these things contribute to bettering the society to get back to the point that we were in the early 1970s when we were considering not no more construction of federal prisons and, and then eventually working people out of a federal prison system, except for the extreme cases, letting things happen in jails on the local on the local front and in states and uh, never again having a juvenile detention facility. But we also have to deal with the mental health issue in this country, and we have to deal with drug and addiction issues in this country. All of these things together contribute to this. So we can't, when we talk about prison abolition, we're talking about that as the end of a very bad cycle in a bad chain of events, not just prison abolition on its surface, which I'm sure Simone could give us chapter and verse on all of the aspects related to that. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure that that is contextualized in this comment because she's bringing up an, an excellent point. Now on to Philip C. Philip C. Here's something I've heard a lot. I don't think it's really a trope, maybe more of a wishful thinking type of thing, which is in response to the YouTube series of right-wing tropes, dumb right-wing tropes. Which I'm thinking of changing the names, name of because it's hard to say. It, I almost just dumb, dumb 
white winged phobes is yep. what I want to say. So I don't want to say stupid because stupid's harder, harder and harsher of a word. Do do it could be silly, doofy, something like that. But I think dumb has to. I, I think I need to revisit that. Dumb, dumb right wing tropes. Dumb. Do you know how many retakes I do on that? I should have. I should have known from the very first one that I tried to do that dumb I should have changed right it. Right wing, dumb, silly right wing tropes comes off fast. Silly is too like. Easy. I know. It's, yeah, you're right. You're right. Like, I don't know. We'll we'll brainstorm. Okay. So, um, I'll let the unfuckers tell us what yeah. it should be called. So, it's the idea. The trope is, or sort of a trope. It's the idea that conservatives and Republicans used to be rational, forthright, deserving of respect, and a necessary balance to liberal values and policies. I have personally not ever been impressed in my lifetime with conservative tactics or values. Admittedly, I'm biased, and I do understand that when an issue or policy gets hammered out, different sides should be heard. But in my opinion, conservatives haven't produced anything of value in them. Where does this concept come from, and do you think it has merit? Yeah, so maybe just conservative values? Yeah. Family values? Mm, yeah, or like American values. American values. You know. Yeah, just tackling the concept of values and why they think that their principles and values are always superior. He ends with, why are conservatives constantly so fucking smug? Because they think they're right. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, something something around values, American values, family values, conservative values. I think that's a really good place for us to go. And we'll hone in on that. If anybody has ideas on what the trope would be, that would be great. They could probably be different ones. But, yeah, I like it. Aaron N. said, things are bad in New Zealand. We owe New Zealand a Kiwi fucking this year. Unfucking. Unfucking, yes. You want to fuck it up. We don't want to fuck the Kiwis. We want (laughs) to unfuck the Kiwis. The airlines have turned on tourism to full while we're mon- mounted. <laughs> Yesterday we had a discussion. Aaron, Ty- I know we keep reference. It's like a, the elusive lost episode, but yes. Aaron keeps where Aaron typed munted and Max wrote it as that. And I said, I think it's supposed to be mounted. I'm very literal. Like, did and you also think it maybe was, munted is a word? Yeah, it was like there. a relative of cunt. So here we are again. Yeah. All right. The airlines have turned on tourism to to full while we are mounted with COVID layoffs. A massive cyclone wrecked half the population while we're breaking in a new prime minister. Years of Milton Friedman eroding our ability to work together in a common goal is not helping us pull our skilled citizens just up and just up and go to work in other country. Oh, (laughs) sorry. Go ahead. You were raising your hand. Munted is a word. It's slang. Oh, shit. Yeah. Broken or ruined. Sorry. The airlines have turned on tourism to full while we are munted with COVID layoffs. Years of Milton Friedman eroding our ability to work together to a common goal is not helping us. Plus, our skilled citizens just up and go to work in other countries at a moment's notice. Super interesting. So what's the plan? I get the feeling anyway, you'll cut it up and we'll end up with billions of unwanted people and a lot of financially damaged former rich criminals to deal with. So Aaron ends looking for the bullet points of how to unfuck Kiwi land down in New Zealand. The the only thing I can offer there is that, if, if anything, the neoliberal tendencies of the United States over the past several decades is, is should be nothing other than a cautionary tale to other countries that think that they should walk that same path. As far as the circumstances on the ground in New Zealand, it's so different because the economy is different, the people is different, the legal system is different, the environment is different, the natural resources are different. Nothing about New Zealand can be correlated with the United States. Now, it can be correlated, I'm sure, with certain regions of the United States. I'm sure it's maybe in some ways a lot like the Pacific Northwest or, you know, in terms of like the density of population and natural resources and abundance and all that kind of stuff. But although it's a lot warmer and a lot nicer all year round, but from an economic system, if you're trying to if you have a a natural resource rich tourism destination type of economy like in New Zealand and you're trying to model yourself after the political and economic policies of the United States, it's simply folly. So the bullet points I'm going to leave for our republic and just caution other countries that think that we have, you know, somehow just shown the way uh, that there's there's a lot to be. uh, It's a cautionary tale. Let's just say that. You out there in the end. Yeah. Now, Glenn S., said what have you all ever looked into the group read the issue of the urban rural divide and it's ruralurbanbridge.org i know the founder of this group who's down in virginia i sent him a link to unfgr i do think it's a good topic in the general things we can actually do rather than just going to protests and knocking on doors and i checked this out and it seems nice it's like 
their website says like to help progressives and liberals reframe the thinking of talking to people in rural areas because often it's very you know elitist not even elitist snobby. necessarily you know because that intrinsically makes it seem like they're lower than people in cities yeah, but, but isn't that the rap on progressives and how they just talk about rural areas? I guess, yeah, I guess right. I just, I, I don't know. I guess I was just going to say it was more like city-minded rather than elitist, but mm -hmm. I think we're getting at the same thing. Yeah. But yeah, seemed like a good organization. Um, so we'll add that link to show notes and maybe that's helpful for someone and for future research for us as well. I'd like to look at it as well. I mean, so much has been written about the Southern strategy, about the loss of the Democratic base and the working class and uh, the kind of culminating during the Clinton era when Clinton really turned his back through this this whole idea of economic neoliberalism through getting rid of entitlements and, you know, sort of like, you know, work for your benefits type of mindset and investing heavily in urban areas in kind of a strange way. So, I mean, we, we have the evidence and we have the names for all this stuff and we know when we lost the core, a lot of it still has its roots in in Southern racist values. So, you know, Lyndon Johnson understanding that going for a lot of the entitlement programs that he was going to be turning over the the Southern working class population to the Republicans. I mean, uh, through and through the uh, Civil Rights Reform and Civil Rights Act. So, I mean, saying out loud, this is the end of the Democratic stronghold, but it's something that has to be done for the better for the betterment of the nation. So these things have been written about quite a lot. And I haven't seen a lot about how to then, you know, get that back and rebridge the gap other than Obama just chastising people on the way out for being latte sipping coastal elites. So this is probably a lot more productive. Can't wait. Now, over on Facebook, Robert C. said, very instructive episode on the Fed and their functions. Max gives a very even handed review. I am of the opinion that we are at the right Fed funds rate long term around four, four and a half percent. Yeah, possibly. I feel zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing should have been ended and unwound 10 years ago. Oh, wholeheartedly. The only thing we get with uh, oh, zero interest rate policy, ZERP, and a 30-year bond rate of 1.8% is the moral hazard of many more Silicon Valley banks. Preach. Another unintended consequence is a regressive tax on the elderly and those trying to save or live on a fixed income. The harm that's been done with an unfair interest rate promotes excessive consumerism at the expense of the elderly, moral hazards with banks, and amounts to a regressive tax on all Americans. Man, I'm gonna leave that right there and let Robert C. just script the next couple of episodes <laughs> because that was so beautifully done. I don't know about Fed funds rate being long-term about four to four and a half percent. That's a, that's a really, that's an interesting number to try and peg. And I think a lot of the fear in the market right now is that Powell was saying, no, I'm going to keep going. You may be right that we've achieved as close to equilibrium as possible. Personally, I think because of the heavy impact on the, the mortgage rates and a lot of the corporate refinancing rates that are going to impact small businesses as a lot of these, these uh, refinancing come due, you know, and any, you know, short-term loans or HELOCs that people have in their homes. I personally, I think, would love to see it a little bit lower than that, but also the Fed should be tapering and and reducing its balance sheet at the same time, which I think would have the same effect, constricting money supply for a lot of the big money that's out there. But I don't necessarily think we want to stop all the deal flow that uh, can potentially take place in the economy. And I don't think we need it, it to be more expensive for consumers to take things like mortgages right now, because it is going to artificially slow down and maybe slow down the housing market way too much. All things being equal, supply chain shocks behind us, maybe the war in Ukraine not impacting raw materials, corporate greed being in check if there's a fiscal intervention that actually makes sense with with taxing profits or windfall profits. If the, all of that stuff existed, then I think that we could more easily manage a federal funds rate in, in the 4% range. But really great stuff, Robert. Thank you. Now on to YouTube. Over on the YouTube, Norma said, seems that increased taxes on profits would better curb inflation. There we go. That's what we're talking about here. Use that money to invest in your workers, innovate, improve and expand rather than hoard the profits or it'll be taxed away. Sound familiar? We used to do that. We didn't lay on it enough, but we had done it in, a, in, a, in another corporate episode, I don't know, a long time ago about aligning corporate incentives and the fact that corporations do not want to pay taxes. 
So, but they would invest in their people. And the more that they pay their people, those taxes still get flushed into the government as well. Uh, but it, it does increase incomes. But also they do, we're going to talk a little bit this weekend about creative destruction and what's happening in Silicon Valley. And one of the reasons that I do believe that the culture of innovation has begun to dwindle so much is because we've allowed corporations to pack so much cash onto the balance sheet. When you're just so flush with cash, you don't really have the need to innovate as much. So you see that we're creating a lot of efficiencies, but we're not innovating as much as we used to. We're also going to talk about the nature of innovation and why I believe it's a little bit of a fallacy. But the bottom line is companies invest in in the companies. If you're taking more of the net, then it's incumbent upon those companies to try and increase their piece of the pie. And they, they compete better, they compete smarter, they pay their people more, and they invest more in the products. That's just core business psychology that is way closer to what was intended under Adam Smith's proposition of capitalism and fostering entrepreneurship. So great call there, Norma B. Now on to B-SAG. Yes, B-Sagacious, who's early, sagacious, I added a T on there. <laughs> Their earliest memory of the Fed was being lectured about how Alan Greenspan was a god and was even greater than Reagan. Not entirely sure that is why I have a deep-seated distrust of that particular institution or if it's all the other learning I've done since. BSAG, who prefers to be called BS, but we he agreed to let me land on BSAG on, on YouTube comments, okay. which was really nice. So I had the same exact sort of experience, not understanding the Fed as a younger person and just being told that Alan Greenspan walked on water. And every time he crossed administrations and was kept on to, to chair the Fed, it was like a sigh of relief that... Uh, oh, we have the anointed one who's... Uh, and they, they had a nickname for him. I can't remember what it was. There was a a character in Buffy called the anointed one. It was a little kid. And then Spike called him the annoying one. Is that what it was? That's definitely what it was. Uh, one is the undertaker. No, that was given to him by his first wife. Yikes. <laughs> Love to hear more about that. Uh, oh, the maestro. The maestro, that's what it was. So he was considered the maestro. Yeah, so everybody thought he was Sound design maestro, many faces. I love many faces. Love, love many faces. So I had the same experience and then it, with everything crumbling under the financial crisis. And by that time, I was much more involved in economic reporting and, and, and writing. And it really sort of soured on the idea of such an interventionist Fed. And then, it, I mean, the housing policies and the disaster in 2008 and 2009 really, you know, brought all that to fruition. It was before I even understand understood that he was an Ayn Rand acolyte and all those kind of things. And he was just treated so reverentially. And then to see sort of this, his whole persona and aura dwindle and shrink so much when he had to testify about what he thought happened during the financial collapse and how his moves might have contributed to it and him kind of strangely taking responsibility and saying that the one thing that his models never took into account was greed. But it is the one fundamental aspect of human nature that relates to everything that you have to model and account for. And it's why a regulatory system exists, period, end of story. And again, we can go all the way back to Adam Smith. I mean, it is essential to have a well-regulated militia a well-regulated economic system in order to foster competition and allow an economy to thrive. It's when you deregulate, loosen regulations and allow for cheap money to just flow through the economy into corporate coffers and reduce taxes, which reduces their willingness to adhere to these type of regulations that all hell breaks loose, not just once, every fucking time. So... Have we learned anything from it? Let's see how many more banks fail. Now, Specker said, would like to know what Max thinks of Robert Reich's info video series, especially the ones about wealth inequality. You've mentioned it before, maybe something to link in future videos. What I think of his series, I love him. I love him all. He has such a strong Instagram game and such a strong social media game. I don't know who his team is, but they are absolutely crushing it unless it's just him doing it by himself it's not he's way older than even me but he's just i don't know he's wonderful i absolutely adore robert reich so there you go we have a, an 11th hour youtube suggestion from peace slippery okay oh peace slip yeah who said how about adding the weekly book love to the shelf behind max during the youtube videos so yeah i could uh, well i could 
I'll start to stack up. I you will, could put one, you know, like one on top upright. Smart. So I've been including the books now uh, toward the end of the videos after my little Columbo segment, uh, which I'm, I'm happy to 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 bring into the mix now. So we've got one more thing from Columbo to try and round things out as we go into book love, if there is a central resource and have been trying to promote those books. So, uh, yeah, why don't we leave them up and promote them and find a little shelf for them? Done. I like it. Thanks, P-Slip. Now, we had some donations. Everyone is really heeding the call to help us really break out and be financially independent. And we super appreciate every single donation, every review, every tell a friend, and anything that you can do to contribute to the growth of the show is so extremely meaningful. This is a big inflection point for us because we're putting, I don't know, two, three times the time and resources into building out both the channel, the podcast, and now the newsletter. This, so it's the newsletter really kind of rounds out all of the, the media that we are working on to consolidate it into one spot so everybody has access to our material and we're still committed to keeping everything absolutely free to the public. So it's like the public radio model where we're just, we're going to do this anyway and we're relying on the good nature of so many of the people that listen to us frequently to contribute something so that we can continue to do this at a high level. And with that, Jordan C., is now a member. Thank you, JC. I've been listening for a while and I'm finally at a place where I can contribute to the work y'all are doing here. Well, thank you so much for doing it, Jordan C., and welcome to the fold. Franny is now a member. As I said in my review, Max and the team are hitting it out of the park every dang time. Thomas H. is now a member. I'm glad for the options you have to let me support you. I just finished my walk and listening to the Fed and inflation episode. And one thought was, well, yes, the Fed consequence just came throughout the SVB bank run collapse. Well, continue the good work, and thank you, 99, for all you do behind the scenes. You're welcome. Ditto. Videoing Alex is now a member. Love you guys. For some reason, I thought I was already paying. Apparently, I wasn't. Well, we, we appreciate you paying now. Yeah. Scott A. is now a member. Love you. Just received my free copy of the Epic Times and figured it was time to join a nonprofit truth-guided news organization fully endorsed by Sean Glenn and other journalism giants. Info is the only weapon to the propaganda. Keep up the good work. All for one and one for all. All be well. Thank you, Scott A. We appreciate the sarcasm and we will keep yeah. up our good work. Hopefully. <laughs> Still scared. <laughs> Dr. Evil Eva is now a member. Since I got my tax refund, I can chip in a little more. Thank you all so much for putting out this great podcast. Oh, here it is. We Sorry, yesterday I thought you cut this out, but I must have, I must have not read it because I read this one. Oh. But. Oh, they say, uh, Max, I hope you don't mind me saying so, but you are a snack. 99 had to tell me what a snack was, and I'm very now I'm blushing. Aww. Thank you, Dr. Evil Eva. That's very sweet of you. Cody B is now a member. Yeon fucking ha, the Republic of America. Nice. The captain bought six coffees. The captain. I said, what? <laughs> See, yesterday I kept talking. Today I knew it was going to happen. I was able to pause. <laughs> um Happy St. Patty's Day. Wow. Happy St. Patty's Day week. That's what I was saying by accident. In your head? Not even. It just came out <laughs> all messed up. Happy St. Patty's week to the UNF Dare crew. Enjoy these, quote, Irish coffees from the band. You got to supply your own whiskey. Love you all and keep up the great work. Well, I can supply the whiskey because we did get a special care package from Ireland. From that our, was for you. From our good friend, Bobby McDee. your whiskey. This is all themed out now. I'm saving it because my goal is to uncork it with him. Mm. We'll figure that out someday. Did you drink the whiskey I got you? Mm -hmm. Is it gone? Mm, almost. <laughs> yeah, almost. Yeah. Nice. Thank, thank you. You're welcome. Was, I wasn't begging for thanks. I just wanted to know if you liked it. Oh, yeah. No, I like it a lot. I have no how, how to judge. I just picked it because of the name. It's writer's tears. Yeah, so I thought it was funny. My uh, Well, let's finish AJ and I'll tell you my writer's tears stories. Okay. AJ bought three coffees, started listening after finding a comment recommending you on Reddit in August 2022 and just caught up. Love the show, especially Max's ability to make everything make sense and how it all seems to go back to greed and money. Always appreciate 99s keeping everything together and the sound genius of Manny Faces. Uh, thank you, AJ. Thank you for the purchase of the coffees. We will split them up evenly and <laughs> we see you. My writer's tear stories is that I was at a wedding last summer with relatives that are not from here. Mm. 
and I think I talked about it then, it was the most fun that I've ever had at a wedding because it was so filled with love and joy and it was so down to earth, like everyone in the wedding party played music. And mm. so they played during the ceremony. And at the end of the night, every one of us sat down and had like a two hour jam session, just drunk off our asses and just playing instruments. What did and you play? Piano. They had oh, a piano there. Wow. It was amazing. But I was what, imagining bongos. Uh, no, yeah, would have gone there. They were they were claimed. They were claimed. <laughs> and I actually had a, uh, I think I got some some blood on their keyboard. Ben Folds reference because right. my uncle had uh, ripped a beer out of my hand and put <laughs> the writer's tears Irish whiskey in my hand oh. and said, have a real drink. And when he ripped the beer out of my hand, he cut my finger wide open and then I was bleeding for it. And that was a whole big thing. My aunt had to, you know, uh, cover it up anyway. We were all pretty hammered and uh, Uncle Mike, not my uncle, but everybody calls him Uncle Mike, started uh, just going on about writer's tears. And he was so drunk that he wound up in a, a chair at the top of the driveway and it puked on the driveway so much. And then my uncle was also hammered was watering it down Ew. with the hose and it was just flowing down to the bottom of the house That's near the party disgusting. and uncle mike was just sitting up there screaming it's the writer's tears oh my god <laughs> it was fucking pandemonium and also one of the best times i've had in i can't even remember how long so i have a very great affinity not only for the name writer's tears because i've shed so many of them uh but for that singular moment and the fact that you came around and bought me a bottle was just close the loop so there you go <laughs> and we have a review to top it all off mm -hmm. would you like to read it no nope, you go for oh, it okay it's from michael f who said max and the team are hitting it out of the park every dang time hmm you're right. Yesterday you said, this sounds like one of the reviews we had up top. And I said, no. But Fran E. and Michael F. both said, dang. Which leads me to believe they're the same person. Uh -huh. You were correct. Interesting. Yes. They must share like a like an iTunes account. <laughs> but um, imagine what this group could do if they didn't have to work other jobs while creating this podcast. Oh, tell me about it. What could, oh, my man. Wow. Oof. Oof. What would we do? Good Lord. You'd be doing the same thing. Mm, My much. life would be a little different. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, not this week, though. Oh, boy. Busy week. Lots going on. That's what happens when your bank fails. Anywho, as always. We don't do that for show notes. You're right. <laughs> Love you. Bye. <laughs> you can say bye. Bye. <laughs>